Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. We continue our reading through Matthew's Gospel. Tonight we come to 1529 through the end of the chapter, verse 39. Let us pray and then read the scriptures. Our God and Father, we come before you upon this occasion of your word being publicly read and preached, and we ask for your help. Lord, I pray that you would help your servant in the pulpit. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, help your flock in the pew. Grant them ears to hear, hearts to believe, wills to obey. May we all come away reformed according to your word. Indeed, Lord, may your spirit work in us to conform us evermore to this glorious Savior, herein set before us again in his works. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Matthew fifteen twenty nine. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is God's word. The scene we are brought to in our reading tonight is first a scene full of misery, and then a scene full of life and power and joy. The misery part is well documented before us. There are the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others with some kind of miserable physical condition. And there's also the miserable hunger of 4,000 men 
and their hungry wives and their hungry children, who have all been without food for three days. Many of these are the relatives and friends of those who just hours earlier were lame or blind or crippled. After three days, they all are weakened enough by hunger that they're getting close to the edge of fainting. This is a lot of miserable, miserable people, the very kind of people we don't want to be. These are the very kind of people we spend a great deal of effort and planning and money making sure we don't become. But it turns out it is these miserable people, the ones we don't want to be, who go home full of life, full of power, full of joy. Because miserable people are the kind of people Jesus Christ has something to give. He has nothing for those who are not miserable. Nothing. And what is that something that Jesus has to give to the miserable? It is his eschatological life. That's what he has to give. Jesus, Jesus shares with the miserable the eschatological life of the divine son. By another word, it is called salvation. It is the life that comes from Christ, the son of God, who has life in himself and gives that life to whomever he will. John chapter 5. It is the life that takes hold of sin-sick, once fallen, once cursed mortals and covers their sins, gives them faith, and holds on to them even through the grave and brings them into the new heavens and new earth. But what Jesus does on this mountainside is not just another miracle, whereby he proves once again to us that he is the Messiah. These miracles for the miserable certainly do prove that, who Jesus is. These miracles are certainly not less than evidence of Christ's identity as Messiah. But these miracles, this one in particular, are much more. We can even say the miracles Jesus performs on this mountainside, in these 10 verses, with this single crowd, for these miserable people, we can say that these miracles are not just revelatory of who he is, these miracles are revelatory of the wideness of the kingdom he has come to establish in his body and blood. Remember, it was not very long ago we read about another miraculous feeding by a few loaves and fishes. It was the previous chapter. Doesn't seem long ago, does it? And here we are again. Matthew 14. On that occasion, Jesus fed 5,000 men besides women and children. On that occasion, they started with five loaves and two fishes. When they collected the leftovers on that occasion, there were 12 baskets full of broken pieces. Now on this occasion, there are 4,000 men besides women and children. And on this occasion, they have seven loaves and a few small fish. And on this occasion, when the leftovers are collected, there are seven baskets 
full of broken pieces. What does Matthew want us to understand? By his putting these two different miraculous feedings so close together in his report. Hmm. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is repeating a miraculous messianic feeding in the wilderness, but this time Jesus is doing it not among the Jews, but in a district populated by Gentiles. Jesus is going to teach his disciples that his kingdom does not just belong to the ethnic children of Israel, the Jews. And this is a lesson his disciples recently proved they are in desperate need of. Do you know what I'm thinking? My kids hate it when I ask that question. (laughs) Remember, the Lord has just taken his disciples to the district of Tyre and Sidon, where a miserable Canaanite woman came to Jesus begging for his help. That is the most immediate pericope in Matthew 15. That's where they were coming from when they came to this mountain. This miserable Canaanite woman had a daughter oppressed by a demon. Remember, Jesus at first ignored her, but the disciples couldn't ignore her because they were so deeply annoyed by her. Remember, they started begging Jesus to send this woman away, 1523. That means they, the 12 disciples, they have a significant blind spot and a significant calcification of the heart, which is my medically professional way of saying a hard heart. A very hard heart in their understanding of the messianic kingdom. They do not yet see that many Gentiles will belong to the true Israel of God. And Jesus is going to take them out of the district of Tyre and Sidon and say, follow me, men. And he says, you think she was annoying? Wait till you see what happens next. I'm going to fill a mountain with Gentiles the most miserable Gentiles. And I am not going to just give them the crumbs of the children. I am going to give them the very loaves of bread that belong to the children because they too shall be numbered among my sons and daughters. So, our Lord takes his disciples around the top of Sea of Galilee, down the east side, climbs a mountain, and sits down. And it doesn't take long for the word to get out that the, the rabbi, Jesus, the one who has healed so many on the other side of the lake, has come among us Gentiles. Bring your sick. Bring your son. Bring your daughter. Bring your mother. And the crowd starts to flow in and set their sick at his feet. But back to that Canaanite woman. Jesus gave that woman some of the children's bread. He healed the demon-oppressed daughter. And then he's now going to heal his disciples. For they are under themselves a different kind of oppression. Remember, they weren't picked because they were at peak ripeness of sanctification and gospel intuition. They were picked by grace And that means they were 
they are fish who are not caught because they're clean. They are caught and then cleaned. The Lord is sanctifying them. He's reforming them. He's shaping them. He's healing them through an incredible, generous object lesson on a Gentile mountain east of the Sea of Galilee. So this is thick Gentile territory. Jesus was either on the edge of the Decapolis over there on that mountain, which are the 10 Greek cities, or he was inside the Decapolis, albeit in a remote wilderness location. This location is made even more clear by verse 39 of our text. After all the miracle is over, Matthew says, Jesus got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, Magadan is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Jewish side. It's just south of Capernaum. That means Jesus was on the eastern side, which is the Gentile side. So at the end, he goes back into the Jewish territory, which just is a way of confirming for us where he is when the crowds are gathering around his feet this time. This is a very different crowd than the crowd he fed, at the, he fed in Matthew 14. Now, there's another solid piece of evidence that this miracle for miserable people takes place among Gentiles. And that is the expression you find of praise in verse 31. The crowd wondered, and when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. Matthew is saying these Gentiles recognized that this good hand, this mighty hand, this compassionate hand that had done all this wonder among them, this is the hand of the God of Israel brought to earth in his servant. Now, they may not have a full Christology, but they recognize that Jesus is a Jew and a Jew with power is not far from them, but actually in their neighborhood, and not just in their neighborhood, he's touching their bodies and filling their stomachs. For many Jews, this is a scandalous place to do anything, even travel quickly. But here our Lord is spending three-plus days healing and touching. He's teaching his disciples because they have made it clear that they need to undergo great reform because they have not yet discovered in their heart of hearts that the Gentiles belong to the true Israel of God. What then are the lessons the disciples are to learn here? Well, let me give you a few by enumeration. Number one, the disciples are to learn Jesus must be made known among the Gentile world as their only compassionate, saving shepherd. The Gentiles are not to look for a shepherd in anyone else. Jesus is the shepherd of the Gentiles, or else they will have none. And of course, many have none. But Jesus is not just the shepherd of the Jews. He is the shepherd of the Gentile peoples all over the world. Everything Messiah comes to give 
the believing righteous Jews, he comes to give the believing righteous Gentile. There is one Messiah, one people of God, one shepherd. This is beautifully revealed to us in the apocalyptic text of John the Apostle, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, we read these words in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, the great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This international congregation, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the only Lamb and the only mediator of God's salvation. And then, a few verses later, we read this. He who sits, this is verse 15, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will be the shepherd of an international congregation, an international flock, not just the shepherd of the Jews. But do you see what's happening here? We are discovering by this passage in Revelation that what Jesus is doing on this mountainside in this Gentile region on the eastern side of Galilee is he is giving the Gentiles a foretaste of the eschatological life that will come upon all the true people of God at the consummation of the kingdom of glory. He is giving them a foretaste of it, which is revelatory of who he is, but it is also revelatory of what he gives to men and women who are slowly on their way to the grave because of the curse of sin. So that's the first item that the disciples are to learn here. Jesus is the only shepherd for the Gentile peoples, and it's a disciple's duty to make that known. Number two, the disciples are also to learn here, the Israelites are just as sickened by sin and the curse of sin as are the Gentiles. The misery the disciples see on this mountain is no different than the misery they have seen Jesus minister to throughout all of Israel. This means the Gentiles are just as cursed by sin as the Jews are, and that the Jews are just as cursed by sin as the Gentiles are. Jesus doesn't teach everything he has to teach in didactic speech. It is often taught with feet-on-the-ground events that the disciples participate in. And he is showing them that the Jews that they they just fed 5,000 men are just in much need of his ministry in life as these Gentiles. Therefore, the disciples are to learn that they are no different, Jews and Gentiles, in their sin 
and being under the curse of sin and in needing a savior. Those whose bodies are half dead or three quarters dead or four fifths dead. And I think that's what we are reading when we read about these miserable people being carried and set at Jesus's feet. People who, are, had, who have made much progress on the road to the grave. Parts of their bodies are already dead. Some of them have their eyes are dead. Some of them have feet that are dead. Some of them have skin that is dead. They are on their way to the grave. They are actually not even really different from us either, are they? They, like us, are under the curse and death sentence of sin. That's why their body is dying. But they may have an advantage over us in that they can see their death more easily than we who are healthy can see our own. Unless we have ears to hear what the word says about us. And then by the word, we can discover that we are in just as much a desperate condition as all these miserable people. If you followed me every day of my life, until my obituary appeared in the local newspaper. If you followed me every day, and don't worry, I don't have a blog or a vlog where you can do that. If you did, you would actually see me succumb to all this same misery that the people in our text have succumbed to. A day would come, and it might be the same day for all these things. It might be several days or weeks or months, but the day would come where my eyes would stop working my feet would stop working. My muscles would atrophy. And I would be making serious progress to the grave. Our Lord Jesus has said everywhere that the curse of sin is the curse of death. And that he is the one who has come to defeat that great enemy who has been defeating image bearers of God since the fall of man. And who is that great enemy? Death. Death has been putting men in the grave every generation and it has not missed a one. There's no generation death has skipped. They're all in the grave. That's the ultimate enemy then. And whoever can defeat death is the truest victor of victors. Jesus is showing on this Gentile hillside that he has come to put a stop to death. He has not just come to show that he is able to do it in a sort of philosophical way by giving a speech. He has come to show that he is willing to do it. And he is giving a foretaste to these miserable ones that he desires life. Now, don't get caught in the deep weeds of thinking, well, did all of them have saving faith? Unlikely. But Jesus heals all of them, to give all of them a testimony that there's a man of God on the earth who is doing wonderful things and countering the great enemy of sinful men. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let's go talk to him. Let's go meet him. Let's go follow him. Let's go hear him. Let's bring grandma to him. 
Our Lord said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. He wasn't giving medical advice. When Jesus said that, once in each gospel it's recorded, he was speaking about the power of sin. It would be very easy for the disciples to stay in their calcified state of mind and think that the Messiah has only come to bring life to the Jews. And if that were true, what would it mean about the warrant for giving life to the Jews? It would mean that something about them made them merit the reward of life. That there was some kind of less corruption in them or some kind of greater righteousness in them. Perhaps it was because they were circumcised or children of circumcised fathers. Many of them thought that, that they would surely live because they were circumcised in the foreskin. Jesus is working out a scandal of grace before his disciples in this mountainside miracle. He is keeping them from recidivism, returning into that hardened heart, returning to that discipleship of the Pharisees, where they would think that the Jews are the only ones on the earth who deserve the eschatological life of the eschatological Messiah. No one deserves that life. As Jesus says in John 5, I have life in myself, and I give it to whomever I will. It is given freely. And he is showing his disciples how wide and how ready and willing he is to give it to men, women, the most miserable Gentiles, that they would not give the time of day to. Now, beloved, there, is a couple, there are a couple practical applications here as well. And I want to hit on two of them, and then we will close and go to the table. The first application that we should see in this text is that the church of Jesus Christ must always have a great concern for the death of the body. There's a reason why the earliest hospitals in the West were started by Christians. The Christian church knows that our master, our savior, our victor over man's greatest enemy, Jesus Christ, victor over death, we know that he recognized that the man, a man's greatest need was the curse of sin, but he was never ashamed to meet his lesser need, the impact of that curse upon his body. Jesus is healing men and women, boys and girls, every day of his public ministry. Paul summarizes it in Acts in, in a simple expression. Jesus went about doing good. <laughs> what kind of good? The most necessary good. 
showing people that he was on the earth, on the cross, in the grave, in the sky, to put an end to the reign of death. That means the church today must always be concerned about the body, the physical body of its members and of its neighbors. There is a, gr- there is a clear reason that the story of the Good Samaritan is in our Bibles. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. It is he who takes the risk to care for the body of one who is not his immediate kin. It's a testimony to all of us that if we have any concern about the curse of sin and its effects, we will have a concern about the body. That's the first point of application. The church of Jesus Christ should always be on its tippy toes to meet the needs of our neighbors physically. To put food on their table is caring for the implications of the curse. Now, the second point of application is simple. The Lord in our text, he takes the bread and he gives thanks And then he gives it back to the disciples, verse 36, and has the disciples give it to the crowds. The Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples and his church until the end of the age that we should not withhold what we have out of fear that it will not be enough. We should give what we have in faith to the Lord And be hopeful and trusting that the Lord will multiply what we have up unto what is needed. This applies on a very simple matter of having somebody in your home. We can't have them in. We don't have enough bread. We don't have enough cheese. We don't have enough blank. The Christian gives unto the Lord all our good works. We don't overthink them. We give unto the Lord. In the name of the Lord, we give to men, and we trust the Lord will bring about what is needed from what we have. This doesn't mean you're going to see new loaves of bread materialize like a 3D printer on your counter. This means you will see that the Lord blessed in ways that you did not anticipate that the Lord opened things that you didn't think he could open, and you will be fine. Beloved, let us remember that Jesus put this bread back in the hands of the disciples because there would be a day when they would be on the earth and he would be at the right hand of God in heaven, and they would be the ones to imitate all his actions, all his love, all his care, And they did it. They cast their bread upon the waters. And it returned to them a harvest. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways and works of our Savior. We thank you for how he knows to teach and disciple his own. Father, we too are greatly helped by the lesson he gave his disciples on this mountainside.
we are reminded that it is so easy for us to start to think that there are some people who deserve the ministry of Jesus Christ and some who, who don't. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from that mindset. We pray that when we, when we start to drift into it, that you would indeed chase us out, for it is demonic, it is truly earthly and opposed to your Son, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. So, Father, we pray that you would give us in our heart of hearts the same lesson you gave your disciples here. And, Father, we do pray for your churches. We pray particularly for the OPC churches in Wisconsin and Minnesota, our presbytery. We pray that all our churches in this region would wisely and prudently take initiative to care for our neighbors, that we would do it personally and individually in our own circles of life, of daily rising and resting, of working, of living. We would also pray, Lord, that we would take the initiative to do it corporately and that indeed we would not be ashamed to have ministries that seek to give life, to extend life, to strengthen life where death is heavy. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us. We thank you for your grace that you have given to us in this very matter over the years with the homeless hygiene drive, the angel tree ministry, the backpack collection for kids in homeless shelters, and all the other things that have happened. Lord, we do, of course, pray that you would keep us from letting our right hand know what our left is doing and that we would not toot our horn on the street. But we pray that we would not use that as an excuse to disobey the very heart of our Savior's love for life. Lead us, we pray. Shepherd us, we pray, on all these things. Grant us the wisdom we need. In Jesus' name, amen.